It's Johnny D, the Motivational Cowboy. Welcome to the Outstanding Life Podcast. And I am here at the Spike Ranch today with Mr. Chuck Dodge. We got Redbeard in the house. And right now we are interviewing my good friend, Tom Whitmire. Tommy D, what is going on, buddy? Aloha, Johnny D. I hope you're having a sprout standing day. I am. It's even better now. Thank you for coming back from Florida to hang out with us here in nice, beautiful Michigan. I mean, today was beautiful. It was 42 degrees today. In Florida, I think it was like 82, but you don't miss that at all. I don't miss that. And even though it was cold out, I still went outside and walked around the block and got my exercise and fitness and sunlight in. Tommy, I appreciate you being on the Outstanding Life podcast. I've known you for 15, 16 years now, and um, you are probably one of the most interesting men I know. I mean, I know that we're sitting at a table right now with Redbeard and we got Chuck Dodge and they are interesting people. But Tommy, I mean, your story is um, I've never met anybody that can just pick up and go. And you always say, as long as I have my computer, I can show up in a parking lot and get Wi-Fi anywhere. I can work from anywhere. And, uh, you know, being so interesting, I want to know what your childhood was like. Let's just start off there. Wow, John. Um. I was born in Flint, Michigan, raised in Flushing, Michigan, to two loving parents. Which I love your parents. Thank you. They, uh, my mother breastfed me till I was three months old. <laughs> Still probably is. <laughs> <laughs> so grew up, uh, dad was a high school principal, uh, coach, mom was a first grade teacher. Uh, so really focused on high academic success. Um, I chose to enjoy athletics, so I had a focus on athletics, which led all the way through uh, high school, and I like to tell this, the story of 1968. I wasn't alive, but my dad was alive, <laughs> attending Flushing High School in 1968, and he set the school record uh, in the 220-yard dash, which is the equivalent of the 200 meters. You're right. 30 years later... 1998, Flushing High School, same high school Brent LaPonzi went to. 30 years later, my dad's the high school principal of the school mm -hmm. I attend. It's my senior year, up on the record boards, still says 200 record Gary Whitmire. Um, I played you know, baseball, but I quit. I was running track, pretty good. I'm supposed to break my dad's record. In the conference finals, I hit the tape. They announced I... Tom Whitmire, brand new school record in the 100-meter dash. <laughs> so now you go into Flushing Gymnasium. There it is, up on the wall. 100-meter dash, Tom Whitmire, 200 meters, Gary Whitmire. <laughs> the following year, here comes my younger brother, young Mike Whitmire. And he's supposed to be good at the 400-meter dash. And we're going to have 32 years of records Lo and behold, it's the conference finals. I happen to be taking a high school or a college class at Carmen Ainsworth, where the track was. I'd go my class. I come out to the track. Everybody's looking at me weird, giving me these strange looks. People won't say anything to me. I walk up to bleachers. My coach, my old coach, my father are sitting there, and they just start cracking up laughing, Johnny. <laughs> Why are they laughing? Why are they laughing? Because my brother 
didn't get the 400 meter record. He broke my record. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly broke my record in the 100 meters. No kidding. I still challenge it. <laughs> so the next season, I come home. I'm in, I'm in uh, home from college, and we go up to the Flushing track, and my dad and I are, are holding the finish line. My brother comes through the finish line. They announce on the loudspeakers, ladies and gentlemen, Mike Whitmire has just broken his dad's record in the 200 meters. <laughs> So my brother never got the 400 meter record, but he stole my record and he stole my dad's record from me. (laughs) So that was kind of the, you know, childhood. It was that athletic success. I played basketball, won a big nine conference championship, played football, uh, was the captain of the team, started both ways. We were 10 and 0. Was your uh, family ranked number two in the state? Were you guys very uh, competitive? You, your brother, oh, we your were very competitive. Every cousin <laughs> I had, every you know relative, somehow participated in in flushing athletics in some sort, whether they were a, a all state golfer or softball, football, whatever it might have been. We all kind of had success, but then we all were. That was our hobby. That's what we got to do because we had academic success. Right. And in academics, it kind of led to you know being all all well rounded. So I. Uh, was the homecoming most valuable player voted and the girl that I was dating my girlfriend at the time on the same day was uh, voted homecoming queen wow so you got to you know the benefits of being smart sort of handsome and <laughs> having some athletic success and later that year our senior year in the senior superlatives we were both uh, voted uh, best personality okay yeah and then uh, we went on to uh, Michigan State University. Yep. So that's where my college. So I did not pursue a career in athletics at the university. <laughs> so and you played varsity though? athletics, I did not because I did get diagnosed with like an Epstein Barr chronic fatigue. We don't know what this is and there's nothing we can do for you. Right. Uh, at, right before my senior year. So did you play football? Too? At high school? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't mention that multiple times. Well, you did say that... that, that I was that the there starting and... running back and then starting defensive back, uh, captain of the team, and we actually went uh, won 10 games in a row. We're ranked number two in the state before uh, I broke my wrist on the first play of the game. No when you when In Michigan, when you start your athletics in, in the summer, it's 100 degrees, but when you get to the playoffs, it was like 28 degrees <laughs> with right. four inches of snow, so it becomes a whole different game. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So then you go to Michigan State. At Michigan State, it was an intramural All-American. <laughs> Self-coined term, intramural All-American. I played 11 different uh, intramural sports at Michigan State and then was entered in the Lyman Briggs College, which is actually uh, pursuing kind of a science or biology background. Okay. Um, This is, you know, when our computer class in college didn't even involve us touching computers. Um, When I was, (laughs) that's why I say I'm not a millennial. So I was born August 14th, 1979. So A, I was born in the 70s. B, I never had a cell phone in high school. I never had a cell phone in college. And in college, I was still handwriting papers. Right. So, And then that kind of progressed to the next year. I would handwrite the whole thing. And then I figured, well, I'll type the final draft on the computer. And then by my third year, it was actually, you know, computers had 
had uh, made their way and we had T3 lines and Ethernet and Internet and we were, I was finally writing papers. That's why I claim I'm not a millennial. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so you go to state and you graduate there with what, what kind of degree? I ended up uh, being <laughs> switching. Like, um. <laughs> I ended up switching to the business college, and then I joined a business uh, organization there. I actually had a uh, degree in food industry management at the time, and I think they were just too lazy. They saw FIM and just thought I mis miswrote it as FIN, had me down as a finance major <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> So I think they thought I was a little bit smarter than I was. <laughs> then I walked into a counselor's office and, and she said, oh, well, we have a study abroad program in Hawaii. And I said, Hawaii? <laughs> she looked at me, said, you sound interested. I'm going to sign you up. <laughs> and I said, well, I should probably ask my parents. Right, right. I was signed up and my dad kind of said, well, if you're already signed up, okay. Because he knew if I did a summer program, got 10 credits then he wasn't going to have to pay for another semester oh, right, yeah. of lodging <laughs> and food, which I consumed a lot of. So in senior, right the summer before the senior year of college, I did 10 credits. We, 28 of us, got on an airplane as complete strangers. And within two days, we were all best friends, landed in the big island of Hawaii where our professor was born and raised. And she had contacts for over 25 years that we got to take advantage of. So we are some of the only white people or Howleys from the mainland yeah. that uh, was ever invited to some of these sacred homelands and, and sacred celebrations and some of their waterfalls and got to participate in what they do as a local indigenous people because we are coming there as students of life. Right. And Michigan State had had that program for over 25 years. And the people of Hawaii, they, they like... Uh, the Dallas Cowboys and the Michigan State Spartans, because Michigan State was one of the first teams or first universities to go over there and recruit athletes from Hawaii. And a lot of them went on to have success in either the NFL or, or got a degree, came back and were leaders in the community. Okay. So people really respect Michigan State. And so they respected us as, uh, as students there. And we really absorbed their culture and what it meant to kind of live that aloha spirit and, and just really relate to the Hawaiian people. And that's where I picked up Aloha. And I'll just give you a little antidote. Is This is pre-Uber for the <laughs> viewers. There's no such thing as Uber. We actually had to ride the bus. And their bus there is called the bus. And taxis are called the taxi. And their phone number is just the same the same number. It's 888 because it's Hawaii. They make it up. Right, yeah. Um, so we we take uh, the bus to Sandy's Beach. We're having an amazing time body surfing in the ocean. We watch the sunset, and we're standing at the bus waiting for the bus to come. And some locals are like, hey, the bus stopped running two hours ago. <laughs> so we have, we're as far as you can go in the opposite direction. We don't know what we're going to do. And we're just kind of standing there. There's no, we don't own cell phones. There's right. no cell phones at this time. There's no Uber. There's no apps. There's no nothing. We don't know anybody. And uh, two local Hawaiians, surfer bros with surfboards in the back said, what's going on? They said, hop in the pickup. We'll give you a lift. So our intent was they just give us a lift back 
to the college campus in Honolulu, just to the campus. They took us all the way to our actual apartment dorms that we were staying at. We all chipped in money to give them money to the door. How many people was with you? Four. Four of us in the back of a pickup. (laughs) And they said, we're not going to take your money. You just tell everybody that the Aloha spirit lives, and then you just reciprocate this story into the world and let it spread. And these were just, you know, 20-some-year-old uh, kids in Hawaii, and we just embodied that spirit, and I've and I've kind of taken it, you know, through life with me. I love that, and, and Chuck, you're going to agree with what I'm about to say because I know the story after college, and I think that this now, now that I hear this story, now it all makes sense why you're like this free spirit. Because after college, I want you to talk about after graduating college, you literally. I don't know if it was given to you, if you bought the minivan. I want you to talk about right after college, you you didn't go to work. You wanted another, um, let's just say you wanted to hang out. Discover. So it was, uh, as as I, the dusty window of a 1997 Dodge Caravan gold, was it I, your grandparents? It was my parents. I oh, just, your parents. Okay. I just, it was a third car. It was kind of, you know, transitioning. And I took my finger in the dust of the car. I wrote Quest for Greatness in the dust on the back window, took a picture of it, and just started driving. Um, maybe it was, you know, my Jimmy Buffett discovery. Uh, you know, I want to go out in the world and make a name for myself. What did your parents think when you said that you were just going to get in the van and just drive for a little while? I think my mom probably cried. I think a Redbeard's poor they mother sometimes, and she'll <laughs> she can that. bring verbally bring into words that feeling when your when your son. It, it's basically I don't care what you do, but you have to think about how this reflects on me. Right, right, right. right? That's been the whole thing and obviously i haven't cared i just i love this story about you just getting in a van literally in a minivan and driving so i transitioned from graduating from college on like may 5th and within a few days i was up in northern michigan uh living in my parents log cabin kind of like a, a chuck dodge thoreau aspect of just living off the land in the log cabin there's no phones there's mm-hmm. only electricity no heat no air conditioning you know, uh, boating, biking, kayaking, canoeing, fishing, um, that, and then I started making log furniture by hand. So my parents were like, why would you spend, why would you spend to my parents $500? I can make that by hand. Go for it. So I go from making log furniture to then say, okay, October's come. It's getting cold. I have to go set sail on this adventure. Uh, went to Chicago, got a parking ticket for parking within like the first 12 hours and said, I'm done with this. <laughs> Left Chicago and just kind of dead ended uh, going through, kind of hopping through college campuses. So seeing, you know, Penn State University, taking advantage of their their amenities there until I wound up in New York City in about the Halloween time. Okay. And I got to give a, a nod to my cousin Chuck because he did put me up for a couple of days there in Columbus, <laughs> Ohio, and had experiences that I will never forget there. But I so ended you weren't up in living in the van or anything, were you? You actually were. You had hotels in the my colleges, friend, right? I was living in the van the whole time. I had <laughs> modified the whole thing. All the windows I could black out. 
Um, and I had couch cushions down there. I had like drawers built into the back. So staying at your cousin's was a big deal. You're like, yes, I get, I get, I get a couch. And one time was it down by the river? <laughs> so go ahead. So, so you're in New York. You're the inspirational speaker, not me. <laughs> so you're in. So I make it. <laughs> Right, that's a Chris Fire. <laughs> yeah. I make it uh, eventually to New York City. Who drives to Manhattan? Nobody. I drive a minivan into Manhattan. I'm in Times Square. And I pull over just to kind of gain my bearings. And I realize that this meter is broken. I don't know the rules or not, but there's only one parking spot closer to down t- to Times Square than this spot. And I park there and I decide I'm going to leave my car here. So I leave my car there and I go into like a McDonald's, change into a suit, and I go out to, I'm going to discover New York, the Big Apple, concrete jungle where dreams are made of. And I got my resume in hand and I'm going to march. So I decide where I'm going to march. I'm going to march here. I'm going to march there. I march into the corporate headquarters of Playboy, Johnny D. See, I, can't, I couldn't wait to do this podcast with you. I have no idea about any of this. Are you kidding me? What were you going to do? I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but the <laughs> elevator's open. There's the most beautiful receptionist you've ever seen in your entire life, as you might imagine. Uh, and the big Playboy bunny there, and everything's to the nines. And I said, I'm here to apply for a job. <laughs> And she doesn't get rid of me. She asked me a couple questions, takes my resume. I feel, okay, I've really made an impact here. I get into the uh, elevator. I've kind of just taken it all in. Oh, this is a great experience. I can't wait to write about this. I'm taking a journal slash book called Quest for Greatness. Mm-hmm. I'm writing about all my experiences. The door opens. I walk out again. I'm five steps, and I realize that I never actually hit the button to go back down to the lobby. And I have, and the door had opened in front of the same receptionist without me, <laughs> without me realizing. I'm like a total idiot who just walked in again, like reenacting this. I gain my bearings. I go to the NBC building. Um, Rockefeller Center. If yep. anybody goes in New York City, go to the Rockefeller building and go to the Rainbow Room. I hope it still exists. The Rainbow Room is probably one of the best views in New York City. As I'm walking down the sidewalk again, I kind of have like a resume. I'm going to go in here and figure this out. I see there's one person walking towards me and they got their head down at, you know, just staring at their feet. This beat up brown leather jacket and within five steps of this person all of New York City there's not a single person on the sidewalk I look and it's Conan O'Brien so Mr. Conan O'Brien himself had just walked by me I'm I will say one of the only times I've been lost for words I'm completely lost for words I take five steps back to him decide I have to follow him I follow him into the NBC building to the elevators he kind of shows a pass. I just walk in like I'm I'm with him, but I don't go in the elevator. I'm standing there two feet from him. He's in the elevator. Doors are closing, and I said nothing. <laughs> Completely froze. But I put it in, in my mind, Johnny. I yeah. put it in my mind, and there will be a callback later <laughs> on this, a callback. So I have one more stop that I want to make. I want to go to the HBO headquarters, or right there in downtown New York City as well. So I got my suit on, 
you know, I checked my car. It's still, it's still there. You know, <laughs> somebody tried still to there. sell His me house. some <laughs> cheap fake tag watch for $20. Of course I bought one because, you know, great deals from these street vendors. Got my new watch. I walk into the headquarters of HBO. There's a, there's a lady at a desk there. I go up to the lady. I'm like, I'm here to talk to the head of comedy. I have a great idea for a TV show. She said, you can't just walk in here, ask for to talk to somebody. She says, you're going to have to think of something better. So I mill around. I ask the security guard what I should do. And he says... There's a, there's, this is also the days of, you know, and not everybody has a cell phone. So there's actual phone in the lobby. So he says, well, you could go over to that directory, look up to see who is the comedy director, you know, and what their office is, then approach her and say the name and the office and that you need to talk to her. (laughs) Great idea. So I go back to the receptionist lady and I say, I'm here to talk to Carol Strauss, director of comedy development office 274. And she looks at me, gives me the, I know damn well what just (laughs) happened. I know exactly what just happened. I don't know why, but this is your lucky day. Nod to me, gives me her number and points me back to this phone I call the phone. She gets on the phone. And at this time, I was a fan of HBO. And this is the woman whose name rolls on the credit when it says Curb Your Enthusiasm. I tell, I pitched to her over the phone that uh, she my took friends... Call? Yes, and let's do a pitch. <laughs> I said, my friends and I love Curb Your Enthusiasm, but it has nothing to do with the college 18 to 25 demographic shouldn't you be going for that demographic I said right now you have curb your enthusiasm mind of the married man and like six feet under i said why not have a college my friends and i wrote you know three different uh, screenplays episodes in the same style she said i'll be right down <laughs> Oh my God, Brent Laponzi, I'm looking at you right now thinking, thinking, what what am I possibly going to do next? I don't actually have anything. Seal the deal. Seal the deal. I don't actually have anything here to show her. So she comes down, we sit down in the lobby, and and I pitch these ideas. She says, you can't do anything unless you come back to me with a binder. Here's all my contact information. She's nice enough that she puts her arm around me. We get a picture together. Um, she goes back upstairs. I profusely thank the you know the receptionist who gave me the nod and the number, and she kind of just gave me the don't let me down nod. <laughs> so I I leave New York City. I'm excited. I'm journaling all this into kind of what became a 364 page book. Um, head up through like Sanford, Connecticut into Rhode Island, like touring stuff, you know, roadsides, attractions, going to submarine bases. I wind up in Portland, Maine. I'm having dinner at a place called Norm's and I got these two Chuck E. Cheese slash showbiz <laughs> pizza place <laughs> coin dispensers. And the coin dispensers each hold $20 worth of quarters and I have two of those in my pocket and my thing as I'm traveling is like I want to meet people yeah and you kind of got to give somebody a nudge to think you're interested and we don't all have silver and gray beards and 
you know, like mm-hmm. Red Beer next to me. So I paid for my dinner everywhere I went with stacks of quarters. So the guy next to me sees me stacking quarters, thinks that's odd, strikes up a conversation with me. Lo and behold, he's a lobbyist in Portland, Maine. You know, that's the government. And he starts giving me advice of which I wrote about in my book and like a couple places that I should go on my quest for greatness, which kind of have a theory. If you don't know, ask somebody and if they provide you with information or a place to go, then you should probably go there. Yeah. Yeah. So I decided I'm going to hang out in, in Maine for a little bit and then do, you know, catch up on my work. Um, so I go down to a Marina. It's November 5th. It's getting cold. I'm hanging out in a marina and the watching all the lobster men bring in their traps and they're loading their traps on the shores and I'm writing about how I'm gonna be a sailboat and with my sails and I'm gonna go here and there. And a gentleman pulls his sailboat into the marina and starts to back it down like he's gonna launch it. It's freezing cold out. Why would this guy be doing it? I walk over there just to get out, stretch say hello to him. And he looks at me and says, got any tools? Nothing else. Doesn't say anything else, but got any tools. So I asked him what his story is. He'd been working on the sailboat all year. He got it to the point where he could sail it. It's the last day that it's it's still freezing cold. It's the last day. It's not going to snow. He wants to get it. I go get my tools. We're ratcheting, like putting up the mast, putting on the boom, putting up the sails, like finishing touches on the boat. He goes, I don't know how I can thank you other than to ask you, would you like to go sailing with me? Wow. So I'm in this winter coat, boots. I have on a winter hat, winter gloves, and I grab a camera, a camera, real camera. We didn't have cell phone cameras. (laughs) (laughs) And I get in this sailboat and we're sailing through the bay. We're kind of exchanging some talk. He's a doctor, a cardiologist in med school, whatever it may be. And as he sails from where the bay meets the open ocean, the open ocean wind gusts are a lot stronger than a bay. And a tremendous gust whips the sail down to the water. The ocean waves roll over the sail, putting the sail completely underwater. The boat flips. He flips out of the boat I'm standing on like the mast and like the boom seam and he's screaming how I have, if in order to save this, I have to lower myself into what I think is the frozen depths and disaster of the ocean. Yeah. yeah. And I did. So I had to like, even though I saved myself and I'm looking at this idiot floating (laughs) in the ocean and I will preference my mother here who for years has yelled at me to wear a life jacket. Yeah. The one time I go sailing in the open ocean in a tiny boat that we just had built personally 10 minutes prior, (laughs) I'm not wearing a, a life jacket. He's doggy paddling. I lower myself into the ocean and he screams, your tools, your tools, they're floating away with a little bit yeah. of enthusiasm. He had like a waterproof bag that floats. Put my tools in it in case we had any problems. It's floating one way. All the other stuff that had fallen out of the boat's floating the other way. So we're swimming together, all the stuff. We get the boat back. Somehow we get in the boat. We get the boat flipped back upright and kind of like dog paddle our way to the shore. 
So we get out. It's freezing cold. Did you ever like, feel like you were going to die? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's <laughs> freezing sure. cold. Yeah. <laughs> we, like, beach the boat. We take a moment, and, and, he, and he says something to the equivalent of, why don't you come back to my place? We'll get a change of clothes, and then we're going to come back here and get the boat. I'm like, why would we come back and get the boat? He's like, we got about an hour before the tide comes in, takes the boat, and I'll never see it again. Yeah. So we tie the boat off. The next thing I know, why I'm in the shower of some strange man, because everything happened so fast. I'm in the shower, and it hits me like, is this a trap? Like, <laughs> did this guy show up because he was going to get a sucker? He's going to flip the boat. Now I'm in the shower. He's got access to everything. I've told him my whole story. Lo and behold, it was completely opposite of that. Johnny D, the motivational cowboy. <laughs> Chuck Dodge here on my right, and Brent Redbeard Laponzi on my left. Redbeardsauction.com, ChuckDodge.com, the motivation. <laughs> Cowboy.com. You can find me at TomWhitmire.com. Ends up, he's a wonderful human being. He has a week off um, of schooling for in his doctoral program. He wanted to go sailing. He gives me a change of clothes. We go back. We get in the boat again after bailing all the water out of it. Bailed all the water forever. Get it around. You're more of a man than me because I don't know about dock. you guys. I would not be getting back in the boat. <laughs> yeah, we get it around to the dock. He backs it up. I'm pulling the boat up. It the boat kind of won't get onto the trailer. It's a stick shift vehicle. It's very complicated backing. You know, small like Volkswagen uh, station wagon. You don't want the tailpipe in the water. So he's backing that up. We kind of lose track. We focus on the car for one moment, and I look, and the boat was slowly floating back out into the ocean. So I had to go back up to about my chest again to get the boat, get it on the boat. At this point, he says, you might as well come back to my house. I'm having a dinner party tonight. So I changed my clothes Did again. Did he know you were living in your van? I didn't tell him at that point. <laughs> the next thing I know... There's a, a, a famous author who writes for GQ magazine who published one of my favorite books called uh, uh, Driving Mr. Albert, across a, a Trip Across America with Albert Einstein's Brain by Michael Paternitti. There's another writer who writes, uh, she kind of broke the story of the lost boys of Sudan. Um, it's what she's famous for, Sarah Corbett. And, I, and there's college professors and we're around this table having this great thing and we're kind of telling the story and the person said i don't even know you how long have you two been friends thinking we've been friends for life we've been friends for two hours we just had a bonding experience um later that night i confessed that i wasn't actually staying at the fairfield inn i was sleeping in my car in the parking lot of the fairfield inn and it was currently snowing so he invited me to stay a couple days at his house in his extra bedroom. We went to his cabin in northern Maine to winterize his books or bikes. We went to an antique store, bought old books, and I bought this 1897 Bible that I still have that's just colored. And, and from there, Johnny D., um, it just progressed to one adventure after another after another as I traveled down the coast from Maine uh, through the New Hampshires and everything. Before I wrap the story up, it does have some impact. I wound up at Yale University where I wrote eight more episodes of a TV show. <laughs> they just, when you have adversity and you have a reason to do something and, and if, when you 
you know, if you don't have a crisis, create one. I had a crisis and all of a sudden stuff would just flow to me. Mm-hmm. So in Yale University, I wrote all these uh, episodes and then I snuck into what is kind of like their foreign language computer lab. And while everybody else is talking to microphones with headphones on, you know, saying the Spanish word and the English word. Hey, Tommy, that is a train, everybody, going by while we're doing the podcast here at the ranch. So, Spikehorn Ranch, Brent Creek, Michigan, redbeardsauction.com slash canoe, redbeardsauction.com slash trees. So I just had to throw that in there. So I printed (laughs) an entire binder worth of 10 episodes. And this was for the HBO lady, right? I cover sheets, put it all in the binder, had myself a copy as well. I hand wrote what I call a pamphlet. So the gentleman I went sailing with, we had this big joke about pamphlets and pamphleteers. I hand wrote an entire set for Conan O'Brien about how I should be a guest and I would just be a completely normal dude that just showed up in like a green leisure shoe. And I told Conan O'Brien everything I thought was wrong with his show and how he could improve it. <laughs> that, that he always had his skits after the first guest, but nobody tunes in to see the guest. They tune in to see the skits or they tune in to see the guest as parts of the skits. He, that's now the standard for late night talk shows. Yeah. I'd like to think that I invented that. <laughs> so I have all this material. So two weeks to the minute, I park in the same parking spot. I put on the same suit, change in McDonald's. I walk that I figure Conan O'Brien's probably going to walk down that same sidewalk at the same time all the time. I stand there for an hour. He never comes by. But I got this thing. I'm dressed up. I go right into the receptionist of the NBC building and say, I have a pamphlet for Mr. O'Brien. And they send me into the NBC mailboxes. No chaperone as if I knew where I was going. And I put this pamphlet directly in his mailbox. So then I go to HBO Studios. Exactly two weeks later, the same receptionist is there. And I said, I was here two weeks ago, and you really helped me out. And because of that, I got you this candle. And I got her a beautiful beeswax candle. Beeswax candles by Mr. Redbeard. <laughs> Spikehorn Ranch. Redbeardsauction.com slash pollinators. She, of course she remembered me. And then I said, I spent the last two weeks putting together this binder that, that Miss Strauss recommended. She said, I'll have her come down. And then we came down. I took another picture as I handed it to her. We're both holding the binder. Johnny, I'm going to skip ahead to October of the next year. I get a letter in the mail, handwritten from HBO, that basically says that it's wonderful, but they don't have any room in their domestic market for it at this time. But I did get to the point of getting a response but when I left there I just thought that I was going to be the world's greatest author and storyteller <laughs> that I had my own TV show Tell Mom I'm a Writer was the, was the name of that chapter Johnny I love that and we're going to wrap it up and then get back into another segment with you Tommy but but I, Chuck I just want to uh, ask you this and, and Tommy you can chime in here Red Beard, Beard did the same thing if you want something you have to ask and that's exactly what Tommy did. He walked in and just asked. And they gave it to you. Yeah. I mean, that's the crazy part. You almost died doing it. But, I mean, you, you actually put it together. And sometimes you in life, you just have to ask. Yeah, I think. You have uh, to walk through the door, right? Yeah, absolutely. You have to knock on the door. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> Mark Victor Hansen and his wife, Crystal, just wrote a book called Ask. It's it's bridging your, where you're at to the 
your dreams. And one of the things that Mark always says, you got to learn to be a master asker. Absolutely. I love it. Tommy, we'll be right back. Go ahead, Red Beard. Yeah, I think I'm not a sports guy, but I think Gretzky talks about something like that. He says you miss every shot that you don't take. That's right. And again, I love that one too. And Tommy, do you have time for another 30 minutes when we come back? I would love to come back after these special messages. Well, everybody, I'm Johnny D, the Motivational Cowboy, telling you, be safe, have fun, and have yourself an outstanding day. Thanks for listening to the Outstanding Life Podcast. Outstanding Life is a Soul Bridge Studio production.